This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from history to business, and of course, military stories and love stories, and even stories about death, personal struggle. You name it, we tell the story, and send your stories to us at Our American Network, because you and your stories are the hour in Our American Stories, and we produce them often here on this show. And by the way, we'd love to hear your stories about landmarks in your town. That's favorite restaurants, joints, bars, places to go see a band, a place in a park, whatever. Send those stories of your favorite landmarks to ouramericannetwork.org. And Pink's Hot Dogs is a landmark hot dog restaurant in Los Angeles. Richard Pink is the owner. And we love to hear from small and big business owners alike here on Our American Stories and the story of Pink's Hot Dogs. Well, it's as American as it gets. Pink's Hot Dogs was established in 1939 by Paul and Betty Pink. It was established with just a little push cart. And my parents were out of work at the time, and they were looking for employment, and they ran across an ad for a push cart. And it cost $50. And my parents did not even have the $50, and they had to borrow it from my grandmother. And the push cart was available about two miles away from here, and my mother went down to where it was located and wheeled it all the way up Melrose Avenue and put it right here on the site of La Brea and Melrose. And she rented that site for $15 a month at that time. And it was the hot dogs were 10 cents and Cokes were a nickel. And believe it or not, there wasn't even electricity on the site. And they had to buy about a 100-yard extension cord to plug into a neighboring hardware store. And that's how they fired up Pink's in 1939. And for the next two years, they just had the hot dog cart. And then in 41, they built a smaller version of the building that you see today. And then in 1946, the very hot dog stand you see is what it looked like back then. And we haven't changed a thing since then. My parents had curbside service and people would drive up and park and they would bring them out a hot dog and a Coke and that's how it was back then. It's the entertainment capital of the world. And we've got Paramount Studios, 20th Century Fox, Universal Studios. They're all in and around here and all the production offices are here. And so when celebrities came out from whatever city they were from in order to get discovered, they didn't have any money at the time and they could afford a hot dog. And then they started putting their pictures up on our wall. Now, today, we have over 200 celebrities on our wall. But in those days, they put their pictures up there because they were hoping that some of the directors and producers would discover them. They came in for a hot dog, and then, you know, they would get discovered. We've got the Ozzy Osbourne dog, Rosie O'Donnell. We got Martha Stewart. Martha Stewart actually waited in line here for about 45 minutes and created her own hot dog. And, you know, we've got a number of celebrities that have come in, but also the, the movie Mulholland Drive was filmed here, so we got a Mulholland Drive dog. We've got a Harry Potter dog. we got a Lord of the Rings dog. I mean, we got a lot of exciting hot dogs. It turned out people tended to want to order a hot dog by name rather than just a chili cheese dog. They wanted to have a name attached to it. But the chili cheese dog, that's what made us famous. People are always looking for new, something new to market their, their property, uh, whether it's an amusement park or the, even the airport for that matter. And so they came to us and they said, look, you're world famous and we really need something that's very special, very unique. 
And that's how really we came to Cedar Point. They had tried us out at Knott's Berry Farm, which is probably the most famous amusement park in all of Southern California, maybe all of California. And then the owners of Knott's Berry Farm said, you know, you're selling so well, I know you're going to do well at Cedar Point back in Ohio. So we'd love you to come back here. We want to bring your brand. We want to bring the concept, the image, the whole celebrity connection back to Ohio. And we said, fine, because we really like the way you operate pinks over at Knott's Berry Farm. I understand that we sell more hot dogs in California than New York and Chicago, believe it or not, maybe because of our weather, okay? And a lot of people, you know, bring hot dogs to picnics throughout the year and so forth. But in terms of pinks, I mean, we're on the cable channel, we're on the food network, we're on the travel channel and all that. That has put out the word so whenever you come to Los Angeles, you want a great hot dog. And I think every bit is good and probably even better. I'll challenge New York, I'll challenge Chicago, that our hot dogs are even better. And that's what those people that come in from those cities tell us. Pink's is at the corner of La Brea and Melrose in Hollywood. We are open from 9.30 in the morning until 2 a.m. every day, except on the weekends, 3 a.m., and in the summers to 4 a.m. It's the place you come after you've spent the evening at a club, and, you, and Pink's is a party. Yes, it's very delicious. Um, I got the spicy Polish dog. It's really, really good, but really spicy. <laughs> and uh, I got the same thing, and again, it's spicy, but it's, it's really good. It's... Probably one of the best hot dogs I've ever had. I think it was called a stretch uh, hot dog with chili. And uh, I thought both the meat and the bun were just out of this world. I, I would say it's the best hot dog I've ever had in my life. And nothing is close to it. Come all the time. We live here. Uh, so I go by uh, from my house to my office. I go by here uh, twice a day. Um, I ordered a chili cheese dog, and it was really good. I liked it a lot. It was very good. I liked it. Yeah. And they are all right, by the way. Mine's the Brando dog. Try it sometime. If you're ever in La Brea and Melrose in L.A., this is the place to go. Best to go late night. It's even tastier. No one knows why. This is science, folks. It's not my opinion. It's a proven fact. But I've had pinks as early as 10 a.m. It does not get better. And uh, by the way, Mark's Hot Dog in Bergenfield, New Jersey, a close runner-up, the world's best onion sauce. But if you like a chili cheese dog, the buns are perfect, the chili's perfect. I'm getting hungry just talking about it. Again, if you have a place, a landmark, a favorite joint, tell us about it. Just go to OurAmericanNetwork.org. This is Lee Habib, Pink's Hot Dogs, their story here on Our American Stories.
And we continue with our American stories, and we tell stories about all kinds of things on this show. And we read a piece recently in the Wall Street Journal by Masada Siegel titled The Blessings of Rejection. And so many of our stories center around things like redemption, rejection, love, and of course, fear, risk-taking. And this thing, rejection, my goodness, it happens to all of us and how we deal with it. Well, it determines the outcome of our lives, at least so many of our writers believe so. And Masada joins us now. Tell us a little bit about how you got onto this topic and what was your first major rejection? Moreover, how did you deal with it? Well, you know what? I've always been taught to dream big. And I think it's better to try and to not succeed the first time than to never try at all. I I feel like you meet these grown-ups who just never went for what they really wanted in life. And and I, I just think that's sad. I think, you know, if someone tells you no, so what? So someone else will tell you yes. So what I did is I applied to several colleges, and my college counselor at the time said, you know, these are reaches. You're not probably going to get in. And I didn't want to hear that. He was right. I didn't get in to several of those schools. I got three rejection letters in one day, and it was so painful. And my dad just came home from work, and he sat me down. He's like, this is going to be okay. You're going to be fine. You're going to get into college. And he said, we need to celebrate. I looked at him like he was crazy. What do you mean celebrate? I was like, I'm never going to college. I'm never getting in anywhere, and I've worked so hard. Needless to say, he pops open a bottle of champagne, and he's like, we need to have a toast because you will get into college, and it will work out for you. That scene stuck in my head for the rest of my life. And regrettably, not enough kids have that experience. I think their parents internalize this, quote, failure, and then they get all dour. They pass that along to the kids, and they reinforce a very negative, a very negative attitude towards rejection. Talk about how your dad almost insulated you from that with this attitude. Well, what's really interesting is, I mean, I got really good grades in high school, really, really good grades. But the, the lesson that I really learned from that experience was once I got that college acceptance letter, and I'll tell you, when I got the acceptance letter from the University of Southern California, it couldn't have been like a better day of my life. It was the most amazing day ever. And so but what I really learned was not only did I fit in perfectly at USC and it was the right school for me and it really worked out, I learned to never do anything else in my life to impress other people, to only do what I wanted to do. That's an interesting lesson because years later, I applied to Columbia University. A friend of mine that uh, I knew told me about there was a program, an international relations program, and he said, you know, why don't you apply to this? This would be perfect. This is what you're interested in. And this is after I had moved to New York. You know, he showed me the application. I said, hey, I thought about it. And two days later, it's like, you know what? I'm going to go. I'm going to go try. I'm going to, you know, ask him for the application just to see to who, who to call. Anyway, I get to his house and he said, you know what? They accidentally sent me two applications here. Why don't you have the other one? And what was amazing was I applied to Columbia with no GREs, with a B-plus average, with a really strong essay, and a really, I'd worked hard in communications and worked at the networks and taken risks along the way. And you know what? I got in. So when people sit there and say, oh, Ivy Leagues, this and that, like, I have no connections. My, none of my parents, none of my friends, none of my relatives went to Columbia, but I got in. So the lesson I learned from being rejected was follow your own path, do your own thing. 
So getting back, circling back to what you had asked about my dad, my dad has always been one of my major role models because he grew up and he didn't have parents, so he had to do everything on his own. And what I learned from him is I learned resilience, and I learned how important it is to really, you, if, when you don't have a choice to make it, you've you got to make it. You've got to make things happen. Yeah, and the, and the term, what's next? Uh, your dad always liked to ask that. Talk about what's next. Uh, two important words. I, like a lot of other people, I tend to fuss, as my dad would say. I tend to get, you know, I, I get rejected, or I have in the past, and I, I get bummed out, because that's what normal people do at first. And then they say, eh, you know what? Got to keep focusing on the future. I mean, that's, you know, I think it's a powerful word, what's next. Because you know what? You can't change what just happened, most likely, but you can change the next move you make. And you can think either more positively, do it differently. You have options. And I think what people forget when they get rejected, that's just one person's opinion. That's not the whole world. No, the whole world didn't say to you, no, you're terrible. It's one person or one group. And you know what? Maybe it wasn't even the right fit. It's so true. And, you know, in, in this whole college-paying scandal, I'm one of the only people who feels sad for the kid because the parents buying their kid his way or her way into a school is the cruelest form of thing you can do to a kid. First of all, you're teaching them to cheat, and that doesn't help. And second, the kid's not going to face rejection and isn't going to know how to handle it because mom and dad aren't going to be able to buy their way out of everything for the kid. And I would add this. When I was in law school at the University of Virginia, there were a lot of legacy kids. And all the legacy kids were at the bottom of the class. Uh, it, it, I don't know what parents are thinking when they do these things, but they're certainly not helping their kids. And meanwhile, your dad, who couldn't buy you into anywhere, when he didn't get the news you wanted, he said, hey, let's have a party. Absolutely. You know, I, look, I absolutely agree with you about these kids. And what's really sad is that when mommy and daddy buy your way into someplace, they're basically telling the kid, I don't believe in you. It's bad enough that the rest of the world will reject you because that happens to every single person on the planet, no matter their background, their money, their this, their, it doesn't matter. But when your parents tell you, I don't believe in you, so I'm going to do something to get you into college because I don't believe you can do it by yourself, that's appalling. So, yeah, all these kids involved in the scandal, I also feel bad for them because their parents basically are saying, I don't believe in you. And when people believe in you, that's the biggest strength you can, you can get. I mean, my parents are so amazing. I, I don't know how they're so calm. I mean, I've literally done crazy things. I've backpacked across the world solo, and they've always had faith in me. They've always believed that I can make smart decisions, that I'm going to be fine. Look, I'll tell you another example. I was living in New York City during September 11th, and um, I remember two days after September 11th, I was working at CNN, and there was a bang on the door, and somebody said, there's a bomb in the building, get out. And I ran down 23 flights of stairs, and I was petrified. I thought, oh, my God, you know, I just watched one of the worst things I'd ever seen before, one of the most traumatic events in my life. And now, you know, there's, some, there's a bomb in this building. I remember I had my cell phone, and I called my mom. I said, Mom, I'm okay. And she's like, of course you're okay. America is strong. You're going to be fine. Now go back to work. I was like, what? <laughs> go back to work? I'm like, I don't know if I want to be in the building. She's like, everything is fine. Go back to work. And I'll tell you, the fact that during that time period, 
my parents were like, America is strong. America is going to get through this. The fact that they were such believers in this country and how it works and that everything was going to be okay was amazing because half the people I knew, their parents were like, get out of New York, you're going to die. And my <laughs> friends were like, everything is going to be fine. Don't worry. Yeah, lucky you is what I can say. There's a part in this piece where it says, recently a friend lost his job and your response was, congratulations. And he was astonished. Did you just congratulate me? But you had done for him what your dad had done for you. Absolutely. I mean, I look at setbacks as push forwards. My friend did not like his job, was not getting treated well. And so it was almost as if the universe was helping him by losing that job to go get a job that he really liked. And you know what? He did, and he made, I think, 30 40% more money with the next job. But he needed that push forward. He needed to be told, you need to leave. And you know what? It worked out. I really believe as hard as it is in that moment, and it is hard. When you get rejected, it does hurt. I mean, don't, don't think that, Everybody, at least I don't love it, but you, you got to believe that things are going to get better. They're not going to get worse. You're going to move forward. Something is going to pop up. But I think one of the keys is to be as positive as you can be. And it's hard because when you have a family and you have kids, you worry about things. But looking at the negative isn't going to help anyway, so you might as well be optimistic, right? It's so true. And I want to close with words from your column. That's how I've come to see rejection as a push forward, not back, it's a motivator. And when you finally achieve your goals, you might find yourself more grateful and understanding for having been on the other side. And such, such wise words, Masada, thanks for sharing your stories of rejection and the blessing of rejection. Well, thank you for having me on your show today. And again, you've been listening to Masada Siegel, The Blessings of Rejection. And we'd love to hear your rejection story. We all have one. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. And my goodness, if your parents listen carefully to how she talked about her father and mother, particularly her father, popping open that champagne on what she thought was the worst day of her life. Not bad advice. Masada Siegel's story, her family's story, the blessings of rejection here on Our American Story. Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. Our Hillsdale interns this year were sent on a winding, epic road trip through the American South. They went on big boats, they ate clams. Monty was almost shut in a record store for the night, which actually would have made him quite happy. They also went to the top of Lookout Mountain, where the famous Rock City Gardens are located. Many Americans know Rock City for its natural beauty, but behind that beauty lies an interesting story about love and entrepreneurship. Here's Monty and Rock City, Inc. CEO Bill Shapin with the story of Rock City. At the top of a mountain straddling the border of Georgia and Tennessee, the distant sound of a waterfall, the rustling of the leaves, families enjoying a day out, and the plucking of a banjo are carried upon fresh southern winds. Welcome to Rock City Gardens. 
the staple destination of Lookout Mountain that has welcomed generations of visitors to its grounds. Rock City is the lasting impact of a single family who have dedicated their lives to improving the beautiful landscape that is Rock City Gardens. CEO Bill Shapin continues that family legacy today. But there's more to the story than just the incredible view. The story of Rock City is one of ingenious entrepreneurship and the devoted love of a husband to his wife, Garnet Carter's wife. So Garnet's life began up on the north end of Lookout Mountain and the Spanish-American War took place and men were training at Fort Oglethorpe and Uncle Garnet sold souvenirs of Chattanooga and Lookout Mountain to the soldiers. Garnet continued to uh, grow and his, his dad had a business called the Carter Company and Garnet Carter and his brother Paul were salesmen and they drove wagons with goods on the back of the wagons. Uncle Paul took the route all the way up to Cincinnati and Uncle Garnet took the routes all the way over to Jackson, Tennessee. And Jackson, Tennessee is where Garnet met the love of his life Frida Uttermullen, and he brought her back to Lookout Mountain. Frida was the daughter of German immigrant Charles F. Uttermullen, a classically trained violinist who was first chair for Charles Lisk and later the director of the Berlin Opera before immigrating to the United States. Frida and Garnett were married in the 1910s, and Garnett continued to expand and build upon his investments, working closely with pre-existing hotels on Lookout Mountain. And then in the 1920s, something happened the Florida real estate boom. Wanting to get in on the action that was occurring down south of him, Garnett, along with others, bought the land that would later become Rock City with the intent of turning it into a golf course and resort. And Frida would have the biggest influence upon this land. Garnett and his dad and another man developed this real estate and it was a resort development and called it Fairyland. And Fairyland was named because of Frida's love of European folklore. And she named all the roads. Fleetwood Drive, who was a king of the gnomes, and Oberon Trail. One road was named Hardy Road, and Hardy was the name of the mayor of Chattanooga. So Uncle Garnet knew how to play politics. But Garnet kept these 15 acres for Frida to develop her gardens. And he built this home, and Frida named the home Carter Cliffs. Frida was really taking the role of the woman behind the successful man who made it necessary. <laughs> but actually, she was the inspiration of Rock City Gardens. And she designed the trail and the entire trail is called the Enchanted Trail because of Frida's love for folklore. Being German, she had a love and fascination with gnomes. And so she populated her garden with gnomes. And she named these features along the trail, Gnomes Overpass, Goblins Underpass, and other fairy tale themed names. But there were still hotels on Lookout Mountain, so people were coming as they had ever since the first hotels were built up here. And they would come to Rock City and they would visit, but just like today, 
they were litter bugs. So they'd bring their picnics over here that had been prepared at the hotel and they would leave trash. So Uncle Garnet said, well, by golly, they're coming to my house and my yard. I'm gonna build a wall around it. I'm gonna start charging admission. So that's what he did. And he built this little gatehouse out at the end of the driveway and Frida sold souvenirs and gingerbread with lemon sauce. Then as Garnet made money, he continued to reinvest in the business. And in 1936, he said, you know, I'm gonna advertise and I'm gonna paint barns. And if the beautiful landscape put Rock City on the map, the barn painting campaign is what chiseled Rock City into the edifice of roadside Americana history. He hired a young man named Clark Byers and Clark and Uncle Garnet drove away from Chattanooga on US Highway 41 and they found a barn right on the highway before you got into Chattanooga. And he said, we're gonna paint that one. And it said, see Rock City, high top lookout mountain. And then they went in the other direction and they painted barns. Uncle Garnet was very specific on which barn to paint. It had to be after the end of a long straightaway and in a curve. So he selected the barns and then gave Clark lots of paint and lots of postcards. And Clark would go out and select a barn and draw a little picture of it. And when he ran out of money and ran out of paint, he would call Uncle Garnet and ask him for more of each. And Uncle Garnet would send it. In the late 40s, Clark had painted over 900 barns from Florida to Michigan, from Texas to Virginia, from Missouri to North Carolina. And they were emblazoned with messages, Sea Rock City, enjoy Lover's Leap, um, even old grouches like Fairyland Caverns. So that came in the early 50s. So all roads lead to Rock City. Um, and my favorite is Sea Rock City, World's Eighth Wonder. So that continued, and then my dad came to work with Uncle Garnet in 1947 after having served in World War II in the U.S. Army Air Corps. And they decided, because the roads were getting consolidated, that they needed to get into building signs because it was easy, easier to climb a sign than it was to climb onto the roof of a barn. So Rock City became one of the largest sign companies in the Southeast. Garnet Carter passed away in 1954, but his impact on Rock City continues to live on today. It's generational, and so is the park experience, as Bill Shapin knows firsthand. Today, it would be called conservation. And the unique thing about what they did is they conserved these geological formations that had been written about since before the Civil War, but made them accessible to people from all over the world, from all ages, races, and creeds to enjoy what we say God created and man 
enhanced. Since we took over in 1984, we have tried making areas of Rock City Gardens accessible because we want everybody, no matter their age, to be able to enjoy it. It's a multi-generational experience that Garnet and Frida wanted the world to come and visit. So over half of our visitors have been here before and they come back with their children as they had been brought by their parents. But the experience is not the only thing that continues to live on. So does the spirit that was so central to Garnet Carter's success and continued success of Rock City. Bill Shapin and Rock City's partners are continuing that legacy today. And when we come back, more of the story of Rock City here on Our American Stories. American Stories, and we return to the story of Rock City Gardens, and here's Monty and Rock City, Inc. CEO Bill Shapin to tell us more about this beautiful place and its story. Rock City and the work of Garnet Carter and his family embodies what it means to be dedicated, but it also embodies the American spirit of open entrepreneurship and business ownership that continues today, and according to Bill Shapin, that's hardly a coincidence. I think Garnet Carter's dream was to create a place to honor his wife that would be enjoyed by people in perpetuity. And the reason he developed a business around it is because of his love for free enterprise and the American system of family-owned businesses. Most businesses in America are small businesses. I think he would be amazed to know that Rock City has expanded. But free enterprise and the idea of making a profit to reinvest in your business is what Uncle Garnet did. But Garnet was not the only Carter to have an impact on Lookout Mountain and Chattanooga. Garnet's brother Paul also did. Uncle Garnet and Uncle Paul were generous people in each of their cases, they were thinking of the next generation and generations to come. Paul developed the area at the highest point of Lookout Mountain and built a hotel called the Castle in the Clouds. He donated it to Covenant College in 1963. And the head of development there was a man named Alan Dubel. And Alan would go see Uncle Paul to let him know how the college was progressing. His last visit with Uncle Paul, he went down there and he had this large painting behind him of Covenant College. And Uncle Paul said to Mr. Dubel, why do you keep coming down here? He said, well, we want to tell you the story of the success of the college. And Uncle Paul said, don't you understand? That was the worst business decision I ever made in my life. I went bankrupt, my friends invested a lot of money, and they all lost it. All we wanted to do was build a hotel and invite people to come to Lookout Mountain to experience what I had done 
when I grew up. And Alan Dubel, inspired by the Holy Spirit, Mr. Dubel said, Well, Mr. Carter, now people don't come for two or three days or a week. They're here for four years. They learned to love Chattanooga, and many of those students have graduated and become business leaders in the town that you love. And Uncle Paul, with a tear in his eye, said, Young man, you have made an old man's dream come true. And Rock City today continues to be family-owned and operated. An amazing feat considering 70% of family-run businesses fail by the second generation and 88% do by the third. You know, there are some wonderful attractions in the Southern Highlands attractions that have taken a path to the not-for-profit world. Chimney Rock Park, after having been run and managed by three generations of family, decided that it was time for them to sell to the state, and so it's now a state park. We discussed some things like that with my children and with management, and we have decided that, as I've mentioned, free enterprise and the entrepreneurial mission of creating a profit and investing in the people, and that's where we rise to the top. But investing in the people doesn't just mean investing in the guests who visit Rock City. What it also means is investing in the people who work there too, even if it's just for a summer or a first job. We have a great mission, and it is to create memories worth repeating for our guests and our partners the people who work here. And that's why customer service is such a big part of our culture and our mission. Rock City hires over 300 people in a year who get an opportunity to come to work at Rock City Gardens to work with a team leader who has a mission of creating memories worth repeating. Their next job may be the team leader or the manager, but if it's not here at Rock City, they will be the best partner for the next business to whom they go. They have been trained to be entrepreneurs, to have, be motivated, and we have helped them. And the fostering of a productive customer service-minded work environment has led them to become a leader in Chattanooga and Lookout Mountain Tourism for years. But since inheriting the business, Bill Shapin has also heavily invested in it on an experiential level, as seen in their new ice cream chain, Clumpies. But there is something else that Bill is investing in that he believes helps everyone, even his competitors, the free market. I coined a phrase in 1989. Google says it was in 2002, but it wasn't and it is mine, and it is coopetition. We in Chattanooga in 1989, when I was head of the Convention and Visitors Bureau, decided that 
We needed to cooperate to get people to come to Chattanooga. And so we pooled our advertising money with Ruby Falls, Rock City, and some smaller organizations so that we could go to Atlanta and advertise Chattanooga as a destination. So we cooperated. But for Rock City and Ruby Falls, I-75 and the roads that lead to Chattanooga, we compete. And for the last nine of 10 years, Rock City Gardens has achieved the most outstanding guest service award in the Southern Highlands attractions. We've got to work to bring more people to town, but the reason our market share is growing at Rock City is because we compete and we provide the highest level of service of any attraction in the region. And what the economy now is doing is really becoming an experiential economy. People want to enjoy the view of seven states, the food at Cafe 7, the geode mining experience that we have. People are buying experiences, whether it's entertainment through music or dining with food, it's experiential. But according to Bill, there's something more than that that he owes his family's continued amazing success to. I think one of the greatest reasons to run and manage Rock City Gardens and to have expanded into other hospitality businesses. But for this core business, the legacy of the attraction and the idea that we are stewards for just a short period of time, that it will roll over to someone else to have the responsibility. We do want not to leave no trace. We want to leave a trace. We want to leave it better than it was when we got it. And I think that that has been our experience with Sea Rock City Incorporated, which was able to purchase Rock City Gardens and the sign business from my dad and my siblings with the help of other investors and now the ownership has been consolidated back to the family. And I, as the leader of the organization, realize that it's not gonna be mine for much longer. And I need to make sure that it's better than it was when we bought it from my dad, who made sure that it was better than it was when he bought it from Uncle Garnet. And Uncle Garnet made sure that it was better than it was when no one was truly caring for it. And so stewardship, not ownership, is the key to making a family business successful for generations. I may be third or fourth generation working here at Rock City, but God created this place when he created the earth and it has changed over millennia, but for the last 85 years, it has been enhanced.
again, great job on that, Monty, and a special thanks to Bill Shapin for being so gracious with his time and inviting us into his home to speak. And by the way, Rock City is a huge swath of natural beauty sporting a view of seven states from the Lover's Leap Cliff and all-year-round gardens. It's a truly beautiful spot. Take the family. Garnet Carter's story, Bill Shapin's story, Rock City's story, here on Our American Story. Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between. And if you have a story to tell us, send it to OurAmericanNetwork.org. And we've got a well of a tale to bring you right now. This story brings the elements of nature and explosives together in a way that only our executive producer, Jesse Edwards, can explain. This infamous tale of an exploding whale just happened to occur in his home state of Oregon. Here's Jesse. On November 9th, 1970, a 45-foot-long, 8-ton sperm whale washed ashore on the central Oregon coast, just outside the town of Florence. After all these years, it's amazing that this thing has come back to life again. But every once in a while, it pops up. It's an aroma that still lingers. It was one of the worst smells I've ever encountered. Words cannot describe the smell. It was in my nostrils for a solid week. The whale carcass remained rotting on the beach for over a week, and nobody knew what to do about it. It was too big to bury, it stunk too much to cut into smaller pieces, and burning it was out of the question. At the time, Oregon beaches were under the jurisdiction of the state's highway division, which, after consulting with the United States Navy, decided to remove the whale using dynamite. George Thornton was the engineer in charge of the operation. Well, I'm confident that it'll work. The only thing is we're not sure just exactly how much uh, explosives it'll take to disintegrate this. Things so the scavengers, seagulls and crabs and whatnot can clean it up. Is there any chance it might be more than a one-day job? Uh, if there's any large chunks left, and uh, we may have to do some other cleanup, possibly set another charge. Thornton was chosen to remove the whale carcass because his supervisor had gone hunting that day. A charge of half a ton of dynamite was selected. As word spread across town, Crowds began to gather. I'm thinking we got big trouble here. 20 cases of dynamite. Walter Umenhofer, a military veteran with explosives training, happened to be in the crowd. He warned the crew that the 20 cases of dynamite was an overkill. 20 sticks would have sufficed. 
but his advice went unheeded. This guy says, anyhow, he says, I'm going to have everybody up there on the top of those dunes far away. And I says, yeah, and I'm going to be the furthest SOB down that way. They made a big spectacle of, of, of waving their hats, the hard hats in the air, and we're clear everybody away and all this, all clear. The dynamite was buried under the whale on the leeward side so that most of the mammal would be blown towards the sea. The crowds of people that had come to see the whale be blown to bits were pushed back a quarter of a mile to safety. The dynamite was detonated at 3.45 p.m. What you're hearing are the chunks of rotten whale blubber raining down on the spectators. Walter Umenhofer saw it all happen. And they touched that sucker off, and let me tell you, that thing went up and it was the biggest mushroom cloud you ever seen, and it was red and white and black, and it was nothing but guts and blood and gunk. Carried by strong coastal winds, a cloud of putrid whale fluids moved inland. So everybody all of a sudden start realizing that, oh my God, here it comes. In this mist, we were covered, we were permeated with redness and the smell. Those who witnessed the explosion agree that the next few moments seemed to last forever. It soon became apparent that what should have been little pieces of whale turned out to be big ones. And this stuff starts hitting the ground. Boom, 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 boom. And all of a sudden you realize, my God, I could be killed by whale blubber here. And I'm watching this one piece. There's a big piece up there. And it's kind of flubbering and floating around. And we ran. We literally ran. And it just absolutely stopped. And it came flat down. And kapow. Right on top of Walter Amenhofer's 1969 Oldsmobile. It was a neat car. I just got it from Dunham's, and it was a Regency. And, and like I say, the funny thing about their 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 slogan is it was a whale of a deal. Well, I got a hell of a whale of a deal. <laughs> Within two days, the state of Oregon wrote Walter a check for the full retail value of his car. The blast blasted blubber beyond all believable bounds, yet only some of the whale was disintegrated. The majority of the whale carcass remained on the beach for the Oregon Highway Division to clean up. Due to damage that was caused to local property, whales that are found beached in Oregon are now buried where they're found. And you may be wondering what happened to the man who decided it was a good idea to use 1,000 pounds of dynamite to blow up the beached whale, George Thornton. Is there any chance it might be more than a one-day job? Uh, if there's any large chunks left. In his official report back in 1970, he declared the operation a success, which helps to explain what happened to his career just six months later. He got promoted. For Our American Stories, I'm Jesse Edwards. And great job, as always, to Jesse Edwards, who always manages to find these quirky and yet, ultimately, American stories. And I just loved hearing the voices and the sound effects. My goodness. I just keep thinking about the smell. 
And as always, you can send your stories to OurAmericanNetwork.org. If you've heard of a quirky one like this, or you've just got a personal one that you'd love for us to tell, send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. The Exploding Well of Florence, Oregon. That story here on Our American Story. Turn to our American stories, and now it's time for our American Dreamers series, which is sponsored by the great folks at Job Creators Network, a group dedicated to helping small business owners grow their businesses into big ones and always out there fighting for the little guy and gal who set up shop on main streets across this great country. And today, Alex Cortez brings us the story of someone you likely don't know named Jack Miller, but you'll have been glad to have met him. Russia in the late 1800s and early 1900s had a lot of programs. The Cossacks were like the military part of Russia. The Cossacks would come in and raid Jewish areas and they would rape and pillage. It was a terrible time in Russia, horrible time. So many of the Jews decided to leave including Jack's family, who came to America. What I learned about business mostly came. I had spent five years on the road traveling around the country. My territory was from the Mississippi River to the East Coast, from Canada to Florida. And after two weeks of quote-unquote training, I was on my own. I'd go out on the road, I'd load the trunk up with samples. It was food products, soup concentrate, gelatin dessert, things that wouldn't spoil. And I started selling. As my father-in-law said, there's nothing wrong with you that a good order couldn't cure. But you get rejected a lot. But who cares? You just keep working and you, you sell something. Nothing ever happens until somebody sells something. And I can tell you as, as a corollary to that, nothing ever happens in this world until somebody's got the money to pay for it. And that money comes from people who are working hard to earn that money, business people who earn it. And so from the age of, what, 21 to 26, I was out there almost entirely and then I got married in my fifth year. I had saved money while on the road, and my father-in-law offered us a big wedding or a small wedding with the difference in cash. The small wedding was family and a few close friends in a hotel, you know, maybe 35 people. 
and the cash was, I don't know, $3,000, $4,000, whatever it was, we had enough money to put a deposit on a home that cost $19,600. Surprising, I can't remember a lot of things, but I remember the price, I remember the payments were $99 a month, the insurance was $16 a month. So that was $115 a month, which is what I was making a week. So I fit the perfect mold for a mortgage. Uh, we bought a kitchen table and chairs and a bed. My wife's grandparents bought us lounge furniture, outdoor lounge furniture, which we used in the living room for living room furniture. That's what we used, and we used it for about three years or so. We didn't have any other furniture in the house. So we had the house, but we didn't have a driveway because I didn't want to spend the money to have somebody dig out a driveway and pour a driveway, so, which was stupid of me. And uh, so I decided to dig the driveway by hand. So every weekend I would be out there this whole summer digging that driveway out and carting the dirt around the corner to an empty lot and dumping it in an empty lot and then framed in the driveway and then ordered gravel and we had this gravel driveway for the next 16 or 17 years, no garage. My wife went to work and because we had just one car, she had to walk to work I was traveling for the first year, and I'd be home only on weekends, or every other week on weekends, until I decided that's a, not a good way to be married. You know, I quit. I went to work for a company that manufactured sample cases, custom-made sample cases, where people could fit samples of their products into those cases. They also had a section of their business that was selling briefcases and luggage. Because if they were selling to salespeople, then those salespeople also needed briefcases and luggage. And this guy who owned it wanted to develop that part more. And I had worked with him when I bought sample cases for Universal Foods. but. He offered me a job that I would become a minority partner, 25% of the company. So I went in and I took over that division. When he sold the company a year after I started there, that division was making a profit, but I didn't see any of it. But in exchange for not seeing any of that, he tore up my employment contract where I was not supposed to be in competition. I didn't want to stay with the new owners. And I decided that I needed a job, so I began interviewing for a job. I interviewed a number of places, just like cold canvassing, got a number of no's. But I interviewed one place and they decided to give me a psychological test. So I took the psychological test and I must have failed it because they told me that 
they were no longer interested. I think they were probably right. The psychological test probably showed that I would be a lousy employee. And so that's when I decided that I really wanted to work for myself. I mean, I always had wanted to work for myself, but that's when I really made up my mind I was going to do it. What business? So I thought about it for a while, and then I decided, well, I've got a couple of dozen customers who are buying briefcases from me. What else do they buy? Because I can't live just on the briefcase business. Well, they buy office products. That's fine. I'll go into the office products business. And this idea wasn't exactly a Harvard case study. It was just a simple thought that, hey, I know some people. I sold them something. Maybe I can sell them something else, too. It was no more complicated than that. Hey, it didn't take a Harvard MBA. I didn't, I, I, I got lucky. You need some luck. I happened to pick a field that turned out to be a $100 billion field or bigger, whatever the heck it is. But I didn't do research. I didn't research office products, shipping room, janitor supplies, whatever. I didn't do all of that. I picked this field because I had some connection to it, and then I built it into something. In fact, I call my book, Simply Success, the non-Harvard MBA guide to business. I started with a phone in Dad's chicken store, and he would be answering any calls that came in while I was out selling. He'd answer the phone and they'd probably hear chickens clucking in the background. And when we come back, more of Jack Miller's story. By the way, he named his company Quill, after the quill pen that the founding fathers used to write the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. And his quill brand became the fifth most popular name in office products. But I just keep thinking about those chickens, that driveway, my goodness, that driveway, and of course the patio furniture that got used as the living room set for many years. And this is just what people do, folks. It's frugality. It's common sense. It's not spending money you don't have. And by the way, important virtues, important values that pay off down the road. When we come back, more of this great story and what a unique American voice. Jack Miller's story here on Our American Story. This is Joey Cortez with Our American Stories. We want to thank you for listening to and supporting the show. And we can use more of your support so that we can continue to bring you great stories like this. So go to our website at ouramericannetwork.org and click the yellow donate button on the top right and consider giving a tax-deductible donation. All donations are used to help bring you the very best stories out there. More of Our American Stories after the break.
we continue with Jack Miller's story here on Our American Stories. And after the first year of doing this crazy thing called starting a company, his brother Harvey joined him. And 25 years later, their other brother Arnold joined them too. It was a family affair, and their enterprise, Quill, sold office supplies. But a lot of people sold office supplies. How would they be any different? I was selling paper clips and pencils and rubber bands. Why would anybody buy from me? Having had this experience of being on the road selling for those five years, I knew that, hey, price is important and service is important. I saw how important it was for them. So I decided that I'm going to be very competitive on price and I was going to give the best service possible. We had been the original discount operation in the office products field. Previous to us, most dealers sold at list price. Customers were buying at list price. We started out, we were discounting 15, 20, 25%. So it was okay when I was selling and doing that, but then I started putting out these brochures and the flyers. I was saying, you know, adding machine tape, list 390, you can buy it at sale price, 319, whatever. And that began to cause an uproar in the industry. A lot of dealers were really upset with me. In fact, one of them put pressure on one of their big manufacturers and said, if you sell to Quill, I'm not going to buy anymore. So that manufacturer comes in and tells me he can't sell me anymore. That story got out to a competitor of mine who was a very large dealer in Chicago, a very large, one of the biggest. And that dealer, who I didn't even know, Nate Gold, called the manufacturer and said, if you don't sell to Jack Miller, I'm not going to buy from you anymore. This is a free country. So the manufacturer sold to me because that dealer bought a lot more than <laughs> the other guy. Later, I became friends with that dealer. And one day, when we were in the office, ready to go out and start calling on customers or prospects, the phone kept ringing so much that we never got out that day. And then that kept up after that. And so pretty soon, we decided we'd only go out for something big. So we had actually slid into the mail order business. It had not been pre-planned. A lot of things happened that way, you know, it's sort of by happenstance. Back in the, I think it was the late 70s, we had quite an inflationary period there. And we came out with a catalog every six months. So we guaranteed prices for the life of a catalog, six months. Well, with the inflation, we were suddenly getting increases almost weekly from our vendors. Well, we were getting them almost daily from if you counted every vendor. They got to a point where they didn't even print up new price lists. They simply rubber stamped the old one and said prices are up 10%. 
We couldn't continue to guarantee prices for six months. So we decided to put out a flyer. At that time, we were up to about 36 pages, so we covered most of the popular items. And we put out the flyer every month to our customers. And we found out all of a sudden, when we started doing that, that for two years running, our business was up 90%, 95% each year. It quickly got to a point where our warehouse couldn't keep up with it. We couldn't keep shipping those goods fast enough. I claimed it was marketing genius that did it. My marketing genius helped us to double our business for each of those two years. But actually it was just the fact that in order to keep up with the inflation, we were mailing every month, changing the prices in each mailing. We had 800,000 customers across the country. They were buying all kinds of business products from us and they were buying a lot of break room supplies like coffee and so on. Later on, by the way, coffee became the leading item that Quill was selling, biggest volume. But had 800,000 customers, all by mail, and at that time, a lot of them began buying online. I was Amazon before Amazon was Amazon. If I had had the foresight, and if I hadn't been thinking, well, I'm an office supply dealer, if I had been thinking, I'm a distributor, I've got 800,000 customers, they buy shipping supplies, they buy janitor supplies, they buy all kinds of stuff. I could sell all those kinds of items. But Jack didn't. He did sell Quill, though, to Tom Stenberg's company that you just might have heard of, Staples. We used to think we were buying well. When we sold to Staples, Tom Stenberg insisted that we go through every single item line by line to compare what we were paying with what they were paying. In every single instance except one, fireproof safes, they were buying better than we were. Our vendors had all assured us that we were buying as well as a superstore, that we were getting the same price the superstore was getting. And when we looked at the invoices, they were right. We were getting the same discount that the superstores were getting. Below that line, the superstores were getting an extra 5% for President's Day, an extra 5% for inventorying the product. We, we were inventorying the product, but we weren't getting an extra 5 but they were, and so on and so forth. At the end of the day, they were buying 15 to 20% below us. We were competing with them on price, and their costs were 15 to 20% below us. It was ridiculous. Then we got the fireproof safes. The rep for that line happened to be a good friend of ours, and we were getting a better price than they were. Tom Stenberg went bananas. He went crazy. People have said, and I believe it, I was a typical American success story from the viewpoint that I started with very little. I worked hard. I probably put in 60, 
70 hours a week. And we built the company. And what a story this is. Jack Miller took Quill from a one-employee company himself, just something to take care of his family, to employing over 1,200 people and taking care of a whole lot of families, a whole lot of kids, a whole lot of college bills, a whole lot of everything. And paying lots of taxes too, folks. And that's the thing about businesses and small businesses. Where do the taxes come from? We support our teachers, our schools. That's why we do these American Dreamer segments, folks. We need to understand the people who help generate the tax base and hopefully support them when we can. And to hear more of this compelling American voice, you can buy Jack Miller's books, by the way, Simply Success and Born to be Free, both at Amazon.com. After the break, the final portion of Jack Miller's remarkable American Dreamer's story. What will he do with the second chapter of his life? You won't want to miss it. This is Our American Stories. back with our American stories in the final portion of Jack Miller's remarkable American Dreamer story. He calls his story the non-Harvard MBA guide to business success. And we now hear what Jack's done with the rest of his life after selling his company Quill to Staples. My brother Arnold, anytime somebody would go into his office, he'd say, the answer is no, what's the question? I would always say it is too that simple because my brother Harvey, anytime I came up with something, would say it's not that simple. I'd say it is too that simple. It may take a lot of hard work, but it's simple. The concept is simple, which pretty much relates to our country. You know, our mission statement is simple. All men are created equal. They are entitled to their life, their liberty, and their pursuit of happiness, and the pursuit of happiness being their property, something which can help them improve themselves in life. I mean, my property is what I earned at Quill, building the company, being able to move up. It was John Locke who said that people are entitled to their life, liberty, and property, and Jefferson, I guess, thought it sounded better to say pursuit of happiness, and he felt that everybody would understand that that meant property. Not to say that people can't be happy with other things, but basically people want to improve their position in life. And I really, really get upset with people who don't understand how far we have come in realizing that mission statement. To start with, no, you had slavery. 
We couldn't have had a country if we had insisted that slavery end at that point. We would have been half a country. So in order to get the southern states to agree to it, they allowed slavery to continue, but they put in there that in 20 years, the importation of slaves would cease. They would no longer be allowed. So it was the beginning of the change. And of course, you had the Civil War after that. You had the Emancipation Proclamation. So we are approaching it. Women didn't have the vote, but now they have the vote. And women's rights, God bless them, are all over the place. And there's been a dramatic improvement for Jews like Jack's immigrant family from the discrimination that they've experienced even in Jack's own lifetime. When they came over, yeah, it was a time when the Ku Klux Klan was running wild. They had a 5% quota of Jews at most of the universities in the country. Northwestern, for example, had a 5% quota. Today, it's the Asians that are putting quotas on them. But that went away, you know. I remember riding up into the country and we'd pass a resort and the sign would be up there that says, no dogs or Jews allowed. The Catholics were prohibited from being in some places. But the country has progressed toward that mission statement. It's as if, if you have a mission statement in life, at the age of 20, if you sit there and you say, this is my mission in life, you don't realize that mission the next day. You don't realize it when you're 21. You don't realize it when you're 30. You may not realize it until you're 50 or 55 or 60. And even when you die, there's part of that mission that's not realized. I kept hearing about how the kids don't know anything about our country, our government, our political philosophy. They don't know anything about it. You can graduate from college with a history degree without ever studying American history. And so Jack, in his quote-unquote retirements, decided to do something about it. He created the Jack Miller Center to catalyze the teaching of America's history and founding principles. Now the Miller Center... At this point, we have over 900 professors in our network, and they are at universities on over 300 campuses across the country. And we've developed a very, very strong program where we have summer institutes for the professors. They're 10 to 14 days long. There's 25 young postdocs, young professors in attendance. We have some of the best professors in the country, Jim Caesars, Gordon Wood, who teach at these summer institutes. And then we have programs about their careers. We have a publisher come in and talk to them. How do they get published? They talk about how you do an interview. And these 25 people living together for two weeks begin to bond and they don't feel so alone on their campus because of their beliefs and because they're teaching a subject that many professors on campus don't want taught. They feel pretty alone on campus often. But now 
all of a sudden they've got friends. That if they've got a question, a problem, they need some help, they can pick up the phone and call whoever they were close to during this program. We help them find jobs. You know, if you go to a college and you say, look, we'll cover the salary for the first year. If you give the benefits, we can get them placed. We also have published a journal, American Political Thought. It's a big subscription list now. It's basically paying for itself. That started when a small group of us sitting around having a drink. Somebody was talking about how hard it is for the young professors to get published. And if you don't get published, by the way, you don't progress in your career. It's tough for them to get published because most of the journals are not into founding principles, are not into American history. I said, why don't we start our own journal? Two years later, we had our own journal. So now our professors are getting published in a peer-reviewed journal that is accepted in the academic world as being a top journal. And what I found most incredible about the Jack Miller Center's work is that they and their network of professors have introduced 20,000 newer revitalized courses on American history on their college campuses. We have reintroduced on these 300-plus campuses the teaching of our founding principles in history. They've taught millions of students, and over the years, it's going to be tremendously increased. At the time of our interview, Jack Miller was 89 years old, and yet every day he's still working and working out. So I'm going to be 90 years old next month. And I was at the gym yesterday. I'll probably be there today. And I go to the gym and I swim. And I'm still doing it. The weights are a little bit lighter or a lot lighter. I do more repetitions and less heavy weight. And when I see these young Turks in the gym pushing the heavy weights, the only thing I think of that makes me happy is I was where you are now, and you will be where I am now. So that's what keeps me going. But hey, I keep going to my bad back. I can't lift heavy weights off the floor. I use machines, and that's it. By the way, you know, I'm having my 90th birthday, and I have a picture of me in a muscle pose when I was 18. Goldie made me do the same thing when I was 70. So I got a picture of me then when I was 70. And now she talked me into it and I did the same pose at 90. And it's still pretty good, but you can see the the age is there a bit. But then I had my grandson, who's an artist, draw a picture, a caricature of me at 100. And he's got me with one hand on a walker, very spindly old guy bent over, but with one arm crooked, you know, showing the bicep muscle, and that arm is muscular and strong. We're putting it on a poster, so when the family comes in for my 90th birthday, they'll see the 18, the 70, the 90, and then the caricature of the 100. And what a great story, and what a great second act. 
What a beautiful and bold thing to do with the rest of your life, what Jack is doing and how important it is. Because let's face it, Orwell was right. He said all the battles of the future are fought over the past. We're not even arguing about history in this country. No one's teaching it. No one knows anything about it. And it's tragic. And Jack and the Miller Center are doing everything possible to do what they can to bring American history into our schools. And by the way, that's what we do here at Our American Stories. I mean, we tell the story of America to Americans. And we celebrate all of it, folks. Our National Constitution Week, our National Bible Week, the story of John Adams, the story of George Washington, Ulysses S. Grant, Thomas Edison, Henry Ford. It's a remarkable country. It's not a perfect country, but it's a remarkable country. And the arc has been towards freedom for everybody and the equality of opportunity here. Well, we're working on it. But outcomes, that's a different thing. And it's a different mission. And the mission statement of this country, there it is in the Declaration, as bold as can be. Jack Miller's story, Jack Miller's life, an American dreamer's story here on Our American Stories.